podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to the Wagon Wheel Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Kimber, and this show is part of the 99.94 Network. On this show, we record weekly with questions from the audience via Spotify Live. This podcast is funded by Patreon, which you can join by clicking a link in the show notes. And there are many other benefits, but one of which is to ask questions first on this show. Welcome to another edition of the Wagon Wheel. Boom, Patreon people have been all over the questions today, just like a million questions. So let me try and get through them all. Let's start with Ditya. says, if you're an analyst for an IPL team who was keen on picking Cam Green, what would you advise them? I'd probably be spending all of my time saying, when is he going to bowl? Uh, if we're going to pay this much money for him, when are you going to bowl him? Uh, how often can he bowl? Uh, how does he fit into our team plan as a bowler? Because I think anyone who's going to buy him is going to buy him as an all-rounder, which is fine. He may well be an all-rounder if you get him for, what, three years? Um, He's certainly not an all-rounder in limited overs cricket as uh, as it currently comes, or well, certainly T20 cricket. So from that perspective, that's what I would be saying. Uh, do we have a spot to bowl in? So I think his perfect uh, usage probably going forward might be bowling around the fourth and this, maybe the sixth over is a bit tricky, maybe the third and the fifth over in the power play because of the extra height and bounce, you know, with a hard ball, maybe you can get some top edges. Um uh, those sorts of wickets. Um, and then I suppose he has to bowl in the middle at the moment. I'm not sure that's even where he is. I, I think if you buy him right now, what I'd be saying to any team is, are we happy with the fact he might only bowl uh, two overs on average? Um, and if that's the case, is he still worth, you know, I, I think Scott Steyer has had him as 20 crore in his, um, in his uh, um, uh, mock auction today. So, that's huge. <laughs> um, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't think he would necessarily be at that amount. Uh, but let's see. Jeff so says, um, uh, "What what are the expected batting averages for each position in men's Test cricket? As in, what differ, differentiates someone from batting at five or six? Someone batting at seven or eight? Um, so, you know, just hanging around. Last five years, of course, have been a bit crazy, a bit bowler friendly." So openers have averaged about 34, uh, just under 34. Number threes have averaged 36. Uh, Number fours are up at 39. Number fives are up at 38. I would say off the top of my head, that's the first time that number fives have out-averaged number threes for a long period of time, but I'd have to go and have a deeper look at that. Certainly made a lot of runs this year. Um, So you can see that, you know, uh, they're all fairly, uh, sim- uh, you know, similar. There's no massive outliers in that top five. Uh, number six also isn't that far away. It's at uh, uh, 34 and a half. And number seven comes down to 30. And then number eight comes down to 22. That's last five years, of course, in, in test cricket. It's been very, very bowler friendly in that time. If you look at it from, I think, the year 2000, uh, you got the, op- oh, have I got the numbers right? Oh, I do. You got the openers at 38. 
uh, and then you've got number three at 43, number four at 44, number five at 42. Then there's a bigger drop-off usually, uh, historically, between five and six. I've actually done a video today that mentioned some of this, but essentially between five and six, the drop-off usually is that at number six, you're either playing an all-rounder, an old guy who's on his way out of the team, or a young guy who's coming in. So the numbers are usually a little bit lower. Uh, number seven is 31, and then number eight is 24. You can see all the uh, averages at the moment are a little bit more. So that that's the averages over the last, what would that be, 21 years, I think, um, in that database I have. I think that's right. So so that gives you a good idea then of uh, of how that actually, uh, of how that plays out um, from that perspective. So I, th- I think that answers uh, what the question is. Um, surf. Uh, Ian says, how would you develop Rayhan Ahmed over the next 12 or 18 months? Would he be better served spending his time in the English world or going back to Leicester and playing more regular cricket? I think someone at his age needs to play as much cricket as possible. I don't necessarily believe that has to be in Leicester, um, uh, but he should play some cricket in Leicester. So what you would really like is for him to play some county cricket, but also probably be part of development squads and also travel with England as much as possible. I think what I'd be looking at is getting him as much cricket in, um, as po- uh, that they can find for him uh, in that period, just because um, he is very young and he hasn't played a lot of cricket at the professional level. You kind of want him to learn as many things as possible um, straight away. And so what you don't want to be in a situation of is, um, uh, it, what, what, sorry, what you don't want to be in a situation is, is where he's consistently learning at the test level only. I'm not saying he won't learn at the test level because, I, you know, that is just a, a thing that happens. Um, uh, but what you really want to know is uh, is why there has not been a um, – uh, what you really want him to understand is there's going to be little things that he's going to have to pick up. And if he's only learning them at test level, that means that perhaps – his confidence and his record will go down. Whereas if he has the ability to learn them in A games, he has the ability to learn them playing counter cricket and everything else he should develop. You don't really want him to go back and just play counter cricket at this point um, because it's probably, I'm going to say it's beneath him, but I don't really mean it in that way, but I'm not sure that it would, if he just played counter cricket, it would help his development. So you do want him to be involved in as many things as possible. Um, I'm just going to play a brief break. Hi, I'm Nikesh Raghani, commentator and host of the India on 99.94 podcast. Several times each week, my co-host Sara Waris and I will be bringing you the very best in Indian cricket chat. Whether we're discussing the legend of Julan Goswami, KL Rahul's strike rate, the men's T20 death bowling woes, or the latest controversy involving the BCCI, we've got you covered. You can listen and subscribe via your usual podcast provider. Just search for India on 99.94. You can watch us via YouTube and you can download the 99.94 app. If you love Indian cricket, then join our conversation. Renee says, uh, what... So do you think uh, MI Cape Town is the best team assembled in T20 cricket, better than the original uh, uh, Mumbai? No. I mean, I'm not going to pretend to have gone through all the squads in my head, Renee, and had a look at it. But when you said that, I was like, it didn't ring a bell. And so I went back and had a look at the squad. Um, <clears throat> uh, they've, all, they've got Rabada, Rashid Khan, Livingston, Ryan Rickleton. It's quite good. Uh, then they've got Ollie Stone, Brevis, Curran, Rassi, uh, George Lind, 
uh, Odin Smith, and then Jofra Archer, Wakar, Salim Keel. It's the best bowling attack potentially. Um, uh, it, uh, but there's, I'm not sure that I see as much top level batting quality um, that you would like there. But I like the bowling lineup. Also, the flexibility of that. Also, a huge, just a huge fan of Wakar Salim Keel getting a go. You know, I, I don't know what happened to him. He, he went from the flavor of the month to no one wanting to be involved with him. But for those who haven't seen, he's a left arm wrist spinner. Um, I think he's a really exciting prospect. Perhaps when he came through the first time, he was a bit too young, uh, which might be one way of looking at it. But uh, but yeah, uh, hopefully, uh, I'm not sure he'll get many games in that lineup, but um, if he does, um, certainly. But yeah, the, bowling-wise, I really like it. Batting-wise, it's a bit, I don't know, it, it feels a little bit light to me. Neil says, which non-subcontinental team is the best record in Asia? Uh, is best suited to play in those conditions. My impression is that England actually have a decent record other than in India, but no one does. Uh, is that the case? If that is the case, why? Yeah, so last five years, England have actually played really well in Asia at times. Why can't I find my numbers? Um, I brought this up so I could... Uh, yeah, uh, so last five years, England actually has... Uh, the second best win-loss ratio in Asia, and that's including the Asian team. So they've got a better record there than uh, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Sri Lanka, and Bangladesh as well. I wonder how much of this is Joe Root. But also, I think for a couple of those series, England has really, really prepared very, very well against what were average um, teams at times. Weirdly enough, that's not quite what they do anymore. But even when they weren't as good a team, I did feel like they thought about things a little bit more. I'm thinking back to the, like, the Sri Lanka series of 2018, early 2019, when you know you look at Australia, uh, you look at Australia go to Sri Lanka. I'm not sure they quite prepare and think um, and tweak about things. Some some of the innings that England played there were quite remarkable, and that was a very average Sri Lankan team. But I kind of feel that Australia would have not been Australia and New Zealand might have dropped to test in that or you know um not being not being as dominant as England were and it wasn't that England was a great side at that point so I I think that a lot of it has come into planning um and the way that they think about these sorts of things um a little bit more um it, I suppose the other thing is that South Africa have actually South Africa barely played in Asia in the last five years I think they have played Seven tests in Asia in the last five years. They've lost all seven. Um, and traditionally, they were quite good. So when you ask, you know, uh, England don't have a great spinner, why are they good in Asia? Well, West Indies and South Africa at times have been very good in Asia without um, top-level spinners. Uh, you know, talking about West Indians historically and obviously South Africa, that great period that they had. You know, a lot of playing in Asia is obviously having the best quality spinners, but it's also putting scoreboard pressure on. Um and uh, it's also, uh, you know, the ability to manufacture wickets, probably from your, your seamers as much as anything. But then if you go to England in that, you know, that period that we're talking about, Jack Leach is actually a good Asian spinner. Uh, he's become probably a better spinner outside of Asia of recent times, but he's a really good Asian spinner. And Moen Ali rips it. <laughs> so, and, and, and in, when, if you have Moen Ali in the side, you also have the ability to have an extra batting talent um, available to you. Now, some of this hasn't mattered. Pakistan's obviously a slightly um, different situation, although they tried to get you know guys like Will Jacks and Rayan Ahmed um, into that side. Liam Livingston, I suppose, as well, um, to give themselves some extra bowling. Um, you know, that to give them the Moen Ali overs if 
um, not quite at that same level. But they do have those options. Again, if you look at Australia and New Zealand, New Zealand, Ajaz Patel, I know he took the 10-wicket hole. He's a decent spinner in, in, in Asia, but you want him to be your second spinner, really. Um, you know, Santa hasn't worked. Um, the other bloke, I forgot his name, uh, the bowls, the top spinners that played club cricket in Sydney, you know, not up to it. They just don't have, you know, very good options when it, when it comes to um, New Zealand spinners. Um, it, the uh, South African batters have fallen apart when they have been in Asia in the last couple of years. And Australia, I mean, how many times have Australia looked for one spinner beside Nathan Lyon, you know, and mate was, was Steve O'Keefe the last time that they had a lot of pressure from the other end. So, and the other thing I would say for England is because they do have all-round talent, they probably don't, you know, they can get away with bowling Jimmy Anderson for, you know, 12 or 15 overs or, or Stuart Broad for 12 or 15 overs in a way that perhaps some of the other um, non-Asian teams can't, um, which is another probably a big advantage. I, I don't remember if who was in the, whether it was Daryl Mitchell or Colin de Grandholm was playing against India and they really didn't use their overs very much. And, and I get it. I'm not saying that they're necessarily wrong. But, you know, you watch New Zealand play at home and Colin de Grandholm is a proper fifth bowler. And, if you know, if Colin de Grandholm had not injured himself um, against England, it would be really interesting to see how that series would have gone. Uh, especially he might have enjoyed um, having go a bit of baseball himself. Um, just because of what he can do with the ball, where they didn't feel as confident bowling um, Daryl Mitchell. Um you know, when you when so when New Zealand go to Asia, they don't have that. So I think there's, you know, a lot of different uh, reasons for that. Um, also, I would say right at the moment that England probably played Sri Lanka when they weren't very good. They're certainly playing Pakistan when they're at the bottom of their game as well. And so outside of India, they maybe had a couple of good um, series where either England was in good form or the other team was in poor form or both. Will says, Jimmy Anderson is now on 675 test wickets. Seems like a made-up number, doesn't it? Uh, if you had to pick out of these two options, what would you think is most likely? Jimmy Anderson doesn't quite surpass Shane Warne's 701, or he does surpass uh, Murali's 800. Oh, I think he gets past Warne, um, but I can't see him getting past Murali. So I would say he's less likely to pass Warne. I mean, I think he will. I think he'll fit in the middle, obviously, but... Um, I can't see him getting past 800. Um, I bet, you know, uh, time remains undefeated, I think, uh, Will. Uh, Steve says, is Cricket Archive worth a subscription? Well, uh, yes, I do use it. Obviously, I don't know about your, your life uh, and how much spare time you, you, you use uh, uh, spending these sorts of things. No, I like Cricket Archive. Um, I tell you the things that I use it for it is very good at finding old first class records. And I don't just mean scorecards on cricket info. You can quite often find the scorecards. Um, but it, so I recently did a big piece about pro 40, which I'll do. I'll put the video up shortly of about how it changed English cricket, but it, it's very hard to get the level of detail through cricket info that you need on cricket archive, junior cricket, is really, really well done um, for that perspective and historical cricket, you know, and, and associate cricket sometimes at time uh, as well. You know, Crick Info is not really set up for all those other things. Um, in fact, I don't know how many people know, but Cricket Archive is like a splinter group from Crick Info where I, I believe, and Peter Griffiths uh, would probably have to give the full story, but I believe that part of the reason that Cricket Archive existed was because Crick Info, they were like, we want every international match. 
and Cricket Archive was, we want every match. So from that perspective, there's like five games, five games I've played on there. Don't know why. Um, and so, you know, you can find, you know, to that level of detail, it's got, for me, one thing I really like is the junior stuff, being able to go back and see, you know, a player's progression. As Ali, you know, just retired, you can see his progression from bowler to batter in junior cricket in a way that Cricket Info could tell you, but it can't show you. Uh, so there's a lot of older sorts of things from that perspective. I think it's is it five pounds or five US dollars a month, um, something around that uh, amount. So I can't tell you if that's worth it. It depends on how much you do it. I would say for me as, as uh, someone who likes the history of the game, um, it's certainly worth it. And because if you like to uh, look at first class and list A stuff, especially because T20 stuff you can now start to get in other places, but first class stuff and list A stuff, if you want any information on that, then again, Cricket Archive is absolutely the best place to go from that um, uh, uh perspective uh if you look at other things i suppose the main other thing that i subscribe to is andrew sampson's um package that sounded wrong didn't it sorry andrew uh, <laughs> uh his stats package which has uh ball by ball data of uh everything that's ever been put up on cricket for or, or crick buzz and unlike crick sheet it's been um it, it's been uh filtered by the best statistician in the world not that crick sheet's bad on at all Greg Sheet's really good as well um but Andrew Sampson's just gone through at a different level so I use that and then I have a few like partnerships with companies and stuff but it's not stuff that you can currently buy um you know uh, unfortunately but those are the ones that I use uh mostly and Cricket Info of course Thomas says a lot of the media are focusing on England taking 10 wickets 19 times in a row in tests which is great uh, similarly, there's focus on Stokes' funky fields for getting results. However, England's overall batting averages for and against uh, appear to have changed as followed. Oh, God, I've cut that question off. Thomas, I'll have to answer that one in the chat. Sorry, mate. My fault. Uh, Will says, uh, Ben Stokes is an opener, is a way to get Johnny Besto in the side. Uh, they'll get Johnny Besto in the side anyway. They, they don't, I don't think they need uh, Ben Stokes to open. I'm not sure. I'm assuming you mean test cricket, but yeah, I'll get him in the side. Uh, Renee says, thoughts on the IPL auction coming up, which teams uh, is, are the most desperate and which is the most settled? So I, I wanted to do a big video beforehand, but unfortunately everyone in my family has been sick and spent lots of times in urgent care units and trying to find antibiotics and all that sort of stuff of recent times. So I haven't had a chance to do a big video before the, the draft. Uh, but I did start to look at some of the numbers last night. One team I thought was really interesting was that the Delhi Capitals didn't win a lot of games, but actually projected as a side that probably should have won nine games, maybe even 10 games based on, on everything. I think they lost a couple of close ones, but it wasn't even that they lost a lot of close ones. They, uh, they were clearly a very good side, almost pound for pound. Um, that was the, the one team I had to look at. So I can tell you from that perspective, but on a very basic, you know, thing, it's, you know, the way it works in these leagues is that the teams who are further down are the ones, you know, more in, in danger. I mean, Mumbai are probably going to be trying to work out what they can do coming in because it's, it's not an ideal um, situation for them to be in. They probably took a punt with Joffre Archer. Still don't know if that's going to come uh, through for them. Um, I don't think their squad was as good as it should have been. So I think they might make a few moves. But yeah, uh, um, it's. I feel like it's almost too, 
want to say too early. I don't know if that's the right way of putting it, but I almost feel like there's a lot that's going to happen um, in this auction over just a handful of players. I think maybe that's what I mean. And we, you know, because the, the mega auction happened, and there are probably a lot of players in that mega auction who, who are more projections into the future. And so, what you really should be, what teams will probably really be looking at doing now is getting one, two, you know, high quality players that can come into their eleven while hopefully still developing the other players. I would assume that's what's going to happen. Um, and I'm trying to remember who's the team that that traded everyone. They'll be the most active. Um, but yeah, uh, it, it's it, it's something that sometimes I get a chance before the auction to get a good look at it. And I've been planning for ages to be able to do it. But unfortunately, the India series that, that I finished doing just took so long, it took all of my time. So I never quite got to it. But um, I do have all the numbers and everything in, in, um, available. But I don't think I'm going to get a chance to look at them properly before the auction. Will says, if everyone was fit, who would you pick as four-man bowling attack for England in the Ashes later this summer? Um, <clears throat> everyone is fit. So Jofra, uh, Jimmy, suppose at this stage, Leach, um, and probably Robinson slash Wood, depending on the pitches and uh, you know how you want to go. I think almost with both of those, you probably don't want them to play every test. Um, and then it's probably the same with Jimmy and, and Broad, I suppose, maybe platooning those two as well. I think that's the ideal situation to be in. Um, and then you've got, you've got the ability to have the extra bowling in, well, depending on who they pick, I suppose, but you know, Roots, Stokes, um, for sure. And then uh, if they wanted to you know, continue to try people like Ray and Ahmed and uh, um, Will Jacks and Liam Livingston. But yeah, the, the main core bowlers. I, I mean, I wouldn't pick a four-person bowling attack because that's really not how you should do things. Really, very tangentially based have <laughs> thing that I'm going to say here. But if you look at the um, the uh, it, what George Bailey came out and said yesterday about Trevor said, I think he basically said that head won't go to India because they don't think he can play spin at that quality. I think we are getting more and more towards where this will be the case. And I, and I believe that that will be something that we will see um, from certainly from the big three teams who maybe have a bit more depth and a bit more money. But I think in general, teams are going to think a little bit more like that. And so I would assume that there'll be a, an element of platooning the England bowlers. Again, they've already tried it before. Um, but I think, you know, the more and more uh, that we look at it, the more we're going to see that. So, when I think of a four-man bowling attack, I'm not really ever thinking of that. I am thinking of kind of everyone and, and you know, what might happen on different pitches and who you might want to rest at certain times. James says, is Scott Boland really doing anything unusual and will he regress towards the mean in the nearest future? Well, he may not. He may get dropped <laughs> and end up with an Adam Vogue just like record. I don't think he's doing anything that I have noticed that is more spectacular than anyone else. I do wonder whether there's a touch of Muhammad Abbas and Vernon Philander about him that perhaps he's a bit gormless and, you know, he doesn't have that sort of Muhammad Asif, you know, evil genius style to him or that sort of bookish nerd Stuart Clark style to him. And perhaps we are misunderstanding how clever he is at reading pitch conditions 
he's obviously very, very skillful with the ball, his ability to move the ball both ways. Um, he's probably a little bit quicker than um, some of those other guys that I've mentioned as well. It's interesting because him and Matthew Potts are two that I think I did a scouting report on Matthew Potts when he came in. And I said, I wasn't quite sure what to make of him because he wasn't that fast. He wasn't that tall. He wasn't that skillful. Um, am I missing something else? Um, he wasn't that accurate. But he actually had a little bit of all of those things. And the ability to have you know, four, four of those um, different skill sets all coming together. Plus then he had the wider action and was obviously completely in control of his wobble ball. Um, and I wonder if Boland is, it, again, a similar version of that, maybe slightly more accurate, maybe slightly more skillful, a little bit slower perhaps. Um, but again, that, that ability to have all those different things and, and then, you know, because they can master that one delivery, which seems to still be, working maybe not as much as it was um a couple of years ago but it's still working at a high level uh really does help um but yeah it i would still assume that scott boland you know i don't think scott boland carl jameson akshar patel is there a fourth one I feel like there was a fourth one i don't feel like any of them are you know the missing link you know i was gonna you know they're not the new george loman there's a historical take for you um, so, so I don't think in that perspective, we should assume that any of their records would stay, but also you can, there's no Boland's one. I would say I need to do a much, much deeper dive into probably need to go through all of his wickets to start having a look. But what I would say at the moment is, um, that with Boland, you have, uh, there's certainly, you've got a guy being picked in the peak period going up against. Um, at times, some poorer batting lineups. Um, he's got a very, very good bowling lineup around him. He He's very, very skillful. And I think he knows exactly what he wants to do. What I really want to see is him, uh, you know, continue to play over two years just to see what how good he is and how much he can develop. But I, I do think he's a very, I'm a Victorian. I thought he was a very good bowler a long time ago. And I remember he would play for, did he play for the Stars when I was at the Stars? I think he might have. I remember thinking in white ball cricket, he just didn't make any sense. And then you watch him in red ball cricket and just be like, so skillful. But Australia hadn't been picking skillful bowlers. I almost feel like bowling was an accident that worked in a way that Chad Sayers was um, someone that they forced into the side and didn't work. Maybe Jordan Silk was another one. Christopher says, when did cricket start honoring landmark innings such as hundreds and five wicket halls? Um, I think from the first time someone got to 100. I don't know about the five-wicket hall, um, but I remember, so if you read the first book on that uh, on cricket, which I've forgotten the name of, sorry, um, they definitely talk about hundreds there. So that's late 1700s. Um, and I think they talk about five-wicket halls as well. So it was very, very early on. Um, do we put too much important on players reaching these figures? Um, Yes. I mean, it, some, some of the best innings most of us have seen have not been hundreds. Um, some of the best bowling spells don't get any wickets. Uh, generally, you know, there have been bowlers like Richard Hadley, Murali, uh, Faza Mahmood, who have an extraordinarily high amount of five-wicket holes because they didn't have the com competitiveness from the bowling at the other end. But then you've got 
I'm gonna say Joel Garner. I've got a feeling it's Joel Garner. Um, because he bowled first change in one of the best bowling attacks of all time. Yeah, so 58 tests, 259 wickets, but he only took seven five-wicket hauls. Now, he's probably the best first-change bowler we've ever had in test cricket, and so he's coming on behind, I don't know, holding Roberts and, and, you know, these sorts of players. You know, he's ended up with a bowling average of 21. Um, Absolutely a gun, but he hasn't taken a lot of five-wicket hauls. You know, and and um, is it Mike Hendrick, uh, the English bowler as well, was another bowler who didn't end up with a, fi- a lot of five wicket all. So we certainly have seen that before. Um, uh, you know, it's a little bit different with batting, of course, and hundreds are important. But, you know, what would you rather someone, well, maybe that's the wrong way of putting it, but uh, let, me, let me think about it this way. If I think if you make 100, your team has that 5% a 5% more chance of winning a test match. I think that's right. Um, something that uh, Jonas used to talk about a lot in the old days. I think that's right. And so from that perspective, obviously making 100 is important. But if you're making a if you're making 80 in, in a test match where the top score is 250, that is more important than making 100 where both teams score over 500. And so also the, the other thing that is is quite interesting from a limited overs perspective is that hundreds are, I would say, anti the spirit of limited overs cricket because we see again and again players slowing down coming up to their landmarks because they want that landmark. It's the opposite of what you want to play. If a player is on 90 in a limited overs game, the absolute last thing you want them to do is to start looking for singles, right? You want them to be maximizing um, their, you know, their run scoring ability. So I think from that perspective, um, they do they do cause a bit of a problem, um, but you know we're not getting rid of them. Uh, I just will have a quick break, grab some water, and then on the way back, I've got a couple more Patreon questions, and then I'll get to the comments on YouTube as well. Whether it's missing flights or retirements out of the blue, whether it's resignations or bans, as the old saying goes, there's never a quiet day in West Indies cricket. So make sure you listen to West Indies on 99.94 to stay up to date with all the latest fallout with the teams in Maroon. All right, Will says, following on from last week's episode, is Jimmy Anderson actually the closest um, cricketer to having lots of money spent on prolonging an elite athlete's career? Yeah, I, I think he is, as far as I am aware, the Tom Brady or Serena Williams or Roger Federer, LeBron James um, of cricket at the moment he i've written about this before but his entire career exists in a professional english environment and then england go on to be the most professional team we've ever had he then you know obviously sometimes that does cause him problems early in his career but through the second half of his career the advancements that he's had um the way that he is looked after um you know they can they now have effort monitors uh when when players are training um, you know, they could tell if someone's struggling, all these sorts of little things, you know, um, we're talking about going from the very early stages of biomechanics, you know, all the way through to, you know, uh, well, probably it was, I don't know, water retention and biomechanics were two of the earlier things in cricket all the way through to where we are now, where, you know, he's bowling in the nets and they're like, you're bowling at 70% in the nets. Is this on purpose? All these sorts of things. Um, 
It, so, yeah, I, I do believe he's probably that. Um, we have had uh, other fast bowlers before. So we've had Hadley, McGrath, and Walsh. I think those are the three uh, that managed to do it as well into a similar age. Walsh is, I think, Walsh is um, just an absolutely different uh, kind of um, athlete. Also, he had the advantage of, uh, so he bowled 85,000 balls in first-class cricket. Um, and then, so he bowled 100,000 balls altogether. So if you compare that to Jimmy Anderson, let's have a look. So Jimmy Anderson has bowled uh, 37,000 professional balls. So you start to get the idea of what, you know, Courtney Walsh actually managed to do um, in, in, in his career, how much cricket he actually played. And so, you know, and I've talked about this before, some of it is just very, very obvious that Courtney Walsh bowled everywhere for everyone at all times and had to, um, to, to, to earn the sort of money he wanted to. But Jimmy Anderson has been used when he, only when he had to. They faded him even away from white ball cricket. Uh, he hasn't gone towards franchise stuff. He doesn't play very much for Lancashire, anything like that. And they're making sure they get the absolute most out of him so that every last quality ball is being used. And then you've got the entire scientific um, cricket um, uh, You know, I would say that they're the most advanced in, in England, probably by distance, really completely trying to keep him on the field for as long as possible, you know, almost, almost until, you know, weekend of Bernie style, uh, you know, Nathan Lehman will be operating him uh, by a strings. There's one for Nathan Lehman fans. Uh, Baron says, uh, what are some of the more relevant metrics to replace the orange cap and purple cap, of the IPL? Uh, what are the chances of these being introduced? We already have, do, do I have, um, I suppose I have the most points in fantasy cricket. That would be a better system. Um, most batting points there. Uh, the purple cap is somewhat okay. And the orange cap. No, so the purple cap isn't okay either. So the purple cap basically um, says you've taken a lot of wickets. But you might take 10 wickets. If you play an IPL tournament and you're a death bowler, you might take eight to 10 wickets in the last over or the last two overs of innings, of which... I'm not saying they're not handy because that is an unfair way of looking at it. They have very, they're not worth much more than a dot ball. They've, they've got a slight worth more than a dot ball in that it, on a wicket you get a dot ball, so that's good. And also, if you can get a new batter on strike, um, you know, you don't, and which we now almost always have, of course, except for runouts. But uh, you now also then get the ability to have um, uh, what should be a slightly slow, a lower strike rate with a new batter on strike but they don't have a big impact. Whereas if you took five wickets in the first three overs of, of T20 games, they would have much bigger impacts on the games that you were playing than the 10 wickets at the end. So yeah, in both cases, I, I mean, I think we're a long way away from getting away from that. And if you look at, if you look at um, some of, you know, the football uh, awards. So, is it the gold? I am completely out of my thing here, but the golden boot that includes penalty shots, if I'm not mistaken, of which uh, the best 
penalty taker may have had nothing to do with getting the ball and still gets it. Um, you know, the, the scoring crown in basketball is the most points per game, but actually the person who has the most points and the most assists combined is probably the more important from that perspective. You know, so sports right across the board, they, you know, these things are basically just made for us to talk about. That's all they are. You know, one of the, the great ones, uh, you know, a lot of the basketball ones, for instance, are not um, fully explained by the NBA. And they could explain them. They could put down really set regulations of what their different um, criteria are. But they don't because that allows for people to argue about them and discuss them. And in this particular case, uh, it's, a, it's a TV gimmick as much as anything because you can put the different hat on. Um, and it's a, and, you know, another way of just showing that this player is playing well. So from that perspective, I don't mind them. I mind it more if the players care. That's when I would have a problem with it. And I know some do. That really bothers me. Uh, you know, I worked for a team where a player came up to me and just wanted to know, you know, how many runs he, whether he was one of the top run scorers in the history of the competition. So it doesn't matter, mate. I mean, I can tell you, but it doesn't matter. Will says, does Joe Root need to play IPL to better understand what's required of him under basketball? No, because uh, what he was doing in the middle overs from overs 10 to 40 in one day cricket is basketball. Um, I would say that's more basketball than T20 cricket in many ways. So, no, I think he's already there. Kennedy says, can uh, an off-strike batter call for a DRS review? I don't believe so. No, I think it has to be the um, striking batter, uh, I would assume. Um, uh, I have, to be honest, I haven't looked at the regulations in a while, but that's my, my thought process there. Uh, we'll have another short break, and then after the next break, we will come back, and I will actually... I'll have a slightly longer break so that I, uh, so that I can just um, find a couple of questions on the YouTube chat to have a talk about. I'm Jared Kimber and I host two podcasts on 99.94. Red Inca, which is chats on trends and stories within the game with a weekly Q&A where I can be asked about anything from a time-travelling Don Bradman to which cricket ground serves the best food. And Double Century, I look at the historical stories that make cricket what it is today. You can search for either of them in your favourite podcast platform or on the 99.94 DM app. Beautiful. All right. Oh. Man, a super chat here. Yeah, remember, if you do want a super chat, because obviously so many of you um, have put uh, questions in, uh, the, the easiest way is to go through Patreon, so that make sure that your question goes up beforehand. Uh, but if not, uh, you do then also have the uh, ability to uh, give us a super chat, uh, and then they flash up in a different color or something. I don't really understand how any of this works. Oren says, Oren says, do you think the more players should try and play in overseas first-class competitions or non-three, uh, non-big three nations? I, I think so, but there's not a lot of money there, so you would have to pay for it yourself. Uh, we've certainly seen, I mean, Jimmy Anderson once played in New Zealand first-class cricket, didn't he? I, I, I don't, if you're a, at a certain level, I don't think it really matters what kind of cricketer you want to be. But if you're a cricketer who's just below that international level or a fringe international level um, talent, What's, what's an advantage you can have probably playing somewhere else? I would be interested in seeing a player from a wealthier nation take a chance on playing, trying to play first-class cricket for a Caribbean side. Whether you'd be able to swing it to make it happen, I don't know. But do it so that obviously that they weren't paying you overseas rates. But that would give you the ability to play in uh, m- multiple uh, pitches. So, you know, the Caribbean is quite interesting in that 
You have pitches that bounce, you have pitches that don't bounce, you have pitches that spin, you have pitches that don't do anything. In a small period of time, you might be able to get to play on a few of those. So there is a possibility to do that sort of thing. Um, we have, a, you know, but it is a, you would have to invest in yourself. And I don't think that's, I, not that I don't think it's likely. I think if it's going to happen, we're quite a few years away from that happening, I suppose is the best way of putting it. The Ars says, is it a fate to complete that England will host the next cycle's uh, World Test Championship final? Um, uh, you mean the following one? Uh, I don't think it's a fate to complete. The problem is that England can get media attention um, fans into grounds for um, games that England aren't playing. That doesn't seem to be the case in other places, and they and they seem to lose the attention. And so I think that's why the Champions Trophy was something that went back to England quite regularly. Uh, in that way, that sort of England cultural cricket fan is perhaps a uh, allowing England to do that. I don't think for the rest of time, though, the World Test Championship will be there. Like if the World Test Championship becomes a bigger thing, may disappear. If it becomes a bigger thing and it continues to grow in that particular way, um, I do think at that at that stage there is a chance for it to move to other places. I'm not sure anyone has made, as far as I'm aware, I, I haven't heard of any other teams being upset that they're not hosting it. Doesn't say that others haven't inquired about it and looked into it and everything, but as far as I'm aware at the moment. It's not been a thing of, oh, they're just going to do it forever. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you know, we already know that the Champions Trophy um, was one that seemed almost wedded to England for a little while. That same thing might happen in the World Test Championship. Pratik says, do you think with this T20 World Cup, wobble wall, better bowlers, there's more space for proper batters in T20? Uh, are we seeing less of the likes of Evan Lewis and Lynn, et cetera? Well, no, because I think this was, I mean, this World Cup was an outlier in the way that um, T20 was played around the world. So if you look at around the world, that's what we just saw in this World Cup. So what did we have? We had early season Australia on underprepared pitches during a climate crisis um, uh, going on. If all, of the, if all T20 started being played in those conditions, then yes, I think what you're saying is true. Um, but no, I don't think specifically that was the case. I, th I thought in this tournament, I can understand the idea of that. But when you say proper batters, I still think proper batters need to also hit the ball. And I, and I think that, you know, I think some of the better batters in the world have got a little bit geary. Um, and that's how test cricket is played. Probably one day cricket is played. But in, in T20 cricket, I really think you, you know, you don't really want to be in first gear, in second gear, in third gear, in fourth gear, and moving on the way up in that way. Um, and I, I think that some of those players need to work out how to start in third gear um, and also, you know, have the ability to go from third gear to fifth gear um, in, in a jump. So uh, I don't think this, this, I think that World Cup, I think the last two World Cups have been outliers for a couple of different reasons. Um, and that is why World Cups are so interesting because they do end up becoming more about problem solving and less about what the global trends are. Jimba says, oh, that's an old photo. I think Philip Brown took that photo of me. Uh, and it looks like I'm yelling, but I reckon I was yawning and I was watching Jonathan Trott at the um, Edge Baston Nets. 
uh, before Burrup was the net guy, I was the net guy. Uh, what aspects of the other sport of other sports journalism would you like to bring into cricket? Well, I mean, obviously, I'd like people to do a lot more fact-based, um, statistical-based, analysis-based type reporting. I think the cricket, just the way it grew as much as anything, has always been a little bit more news-driven, you know, and uh, that's boring. I'm not saying news shouldn't be covered, but, you know, at the end of every game, the main story shouldn't be England win, but so-and-so is under pressure and... Sri Lanka lose. Will they drop, you know, will the coach go? Maybe it should be, why did Sri Lanka lose? Is the other team just better? Did they have the better conditions? Was, did some things go against Sri Lanka with it? I think there should be more analysis of cricket. Um, I think we're moving towards hopefully more global coverage of cricket. I would like for, the, you know, I was probably the first global cricket writer. I'd like there to be a lot more of those, you know, 10 or 15. And I'd like it to be even low level global cricket writers that, Perhaps aren't massively famous, but are out there churning away really good articles um, around the world. I would prefer that the analysis, yeah, I think analysis, global coverage of teams is really important. Obviously, I run the 99.94 network. So um, I think there should be more multimedia coverage of cricket that is smarter. Uh, and I love fan podcasts and, uh, you know, some of the, even the professional podcasts out there, but, you know, getting into the nitty gritty of why this team is good and why this team is not good. All those sorts of things are really interesting. Um, I don't know if there's anything specific I would, uh, from the other sports I'd like to bring in. Um, I, I think that the athletic could make a huge difference in cricket. And I really believe that um, if the athletic got to the point where, if the athletic came into cricket, and took it seriously, you know, 12 to 15 um, journalists, I think there would be a knock-on effect in the whole sport. And, and I do think that an Americanization of sports, right, of cricket writing is overdue, but also just needs a refresh. It, it, it's really funny, like, England so dominated cricket writing for so long that England sports writing, I would say, probably got a bit stuck in the mud and probably got a little bit too inspired by the Guardian. And you, when the Athletic went to football, I was like, oh, so it's the Guardian at the Athletic, which is not what I was hoping to be reading in the Athletic. And and so I do think there is a knock-on effect from that uh, right around world cricket. And what I would really, what I would really like is for a bunch of new genres of cricket writers to come out about. Unfortunately, as me and Barrett talked about recently, the most the, the newest one is still the cricket entertainment reporter, which I think, you know, I think that there's someone at the Daily Mail who does that, maybe someone at the Daily Mirror. There's a bunch of them in India and Pakistan. And we're also getting to aggregators where, you know, I go on a podcast somewhere and I say something and it ends up, you know, in 40 different news stories on, on these websites around the world. Um, those sorts of things are sadly the wrong things to be copying, but perhaps that means that cricket is actually um, slowly changing uh, in the way that it, it's uh, doing its broadcasting or media, I should say. Success phase says, is there a particular fault in Baba's batting? He seems to have a knack of getting runs and suddenly he gets out. Uh, no, that's what batting is. <laughs> uh, I mean, th this goes back to the old Joe Root thing, right? Of, um, why was Joe Root going out when he had starts? There's no real proper answer for that. If Joe Root wasn't making any runs at all, um, we, we that would be an easier one, and, you know. But if he's actually making 
good scores and then going out, it's hard to say that there's an obvious flaw there. You know, with Virat Kohli, we saw drops in his record right across the board. Um, I think he played pace worse and spin worse uh, for a period of time. That might have been a technical thing, but it also might have been his inability to um, develop with the, the as the game had evolved, which sometimes happens. You sometimes you just can't move as quick. You know, Kevin Peterson was a really good example of this under the DRS era, right? And Shane Watson probably another one. Sometimes you can develop, but it just takes you a little bit longer than maybe other players do. But in Baba Azam's case, I mean, he's making the runs. Um, so unless it's a fitness thing or a um, um, I don't want to say psychological, but like a, I mean, I mean, to a point, yeah, maybe a psychological type issue. I can't really see um, anything there, but I don't, I don't see any faults in his batting. Oh, I clicked two of these. Sorry. Uh, well, Cara Jemba can have another question. Any other stories similar to Aaron Sorkin and cricket? Uh, yeah, I've, I mean, I've got plenty of ones like the, uh, of of that sort of thing that I would like to do, and not just in cricket, but in in other things. I just haven't got around to that. We, we've been running this team with me, Muku, and Duct Tape uh, for a very long time now. Um, you know, same with the podcast network, you know, me, me and Nick. Um, and now we've got, you know, a little bit of help from people like AJ. But a lot of the people who, who work with us also work on 99.94. The idea is to get 99.94 to a position where we can get proper funding. And I can set this up as a proper channel the way that I would like to run it. That was the case. Those sorts of Aaron Sorkin stories um, is something that I will be doing uh, a lot more, but everything I will be doing a lot more. That recent India um, essay that I did, which was, I don't know, five or six episodes long, I did that pretty much from start to finish on my own. If I have a team, I don't need to do that. And if you look at the difference between the kind of uh, things I was creating during the World Cup, one extra person in Charlie Reynolds meant that I could do so much more work. And, you know, I, I'm a dad, um, you know, I've got three kids. I look after the kids one full day a week, um, two half days a week during, during the day. Um, you know, uh, I, I spend a lot of my time still trying to, you know, occasionally, well, up until recently doing other work, but I still have to do other work on 99.94. I really need a team. The ideas aren't the problem. I have 12 videos written on a whiteboard behind here. And then I have probably another, I don't know, two or 300 ideas in my phone. The ideas aren't the problem. It's just getting um, those sorts of things. On, on, on Double Century, I'm a little bit unsure of what to do with Double Century at the moment. There is a Double Century episode I've just recorded that will go up on Christmas Day. And I, we have actually animated another Double Century way back at the start when we started that podcast. I'm kind of still holding out for the idea that we can make them into documentaries, which means that we will need um, a lot more footage. Um, and not, not just footage, but, you know, it, it will take a lot more um, to be able to do that. And I want to do them properly. There is also another possibility that we do them in a way where, you know, you just see me talking um, and a, a little bit more like uh, one of our last knock videos. I'm not quite sure where we're going to go with that whole double century thing in the future but at the moment it's the only podcast that i run that isn't on youtube and uh we love doing i think for me nick and abhishek it's probably close to our favorite project like it really is something that we all love to be involved with and so i think going forward uh we will look to see what we would uh, what we can do with that and says 
Why are front-loading fast bowling actions more injury-prone like Boomerah, Bond, and Bishop? Um, if, if you're front-loading, I'm, I'm just guessing off the top of my head. I'm not a biomechanics expert when it comes to fast bowling. I know a little bit more about spin, fast, uh, spin bowling uh, when it comes to biomechanics. I would assume, though, that if you're front-loading, are you not just putting more pressure on your front leg, uh, which is on one part of your body? I don't know. Um, it, you know, that's a, a good one for someone like Stefan Jones um, on Twitter. And there's also the ECB um, biomechanist, uh, whose name I've forgotten, who sometimes tweets as well. There's a few people out there that, that cover this sort of thing. But no, Arnav, I don't have a great, um, I don't have a great one for you. What I would, yeah, because you've got Bishop Bond and Bormer. They're all slightly different body types as well, aren't they? So yeah, perhaps it is. It might just be, that you're remembering those three and you're forgetting all the other people who've had many different um, injuries from other different kinds of body types over the years as well. Sorry, I just start a bunch and now I've lost them already. <laughs> all right, here we are. So we had Anav. Yeah, so then we have Pratik says, is the scope for playing Unicard more regularly um, in tests also to aid Ashwin with footmarks? So this is really interesting. I did research on this and I'm trying to think when it was. So this is a huge theory in, in cricket. In fact, so much so that I'm trying to remember who the spinner was, but there was a spinner that someone, um, it must have been an off spinner who played for England, and people believed it was because they had a left-arm seamer who was heavy-footed. It might have been Bollinger who played for them, whoever it was. And so I'd heard this from players before. I'd heard this about Lyon and um, Stark before. And so myself and Amal Daisy, I think, might have looked into this, and we just couldn't find any evidence of it. Now, obviously, it it happens. If you're a left-arm bowler and you're coming through the crease, you are going to create footmarks for a right-arm off spinner to bowl to a right-handed batter. I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but we couldn't find any evidence that suggested that it uh, that it helped right uh, off spinners in the third and fourth innings against um, uh, right-handers. Um, I think that's what me and Amol looked at. I, 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 it was a while back um, that we had a look at it. And one of the reasons is that when you have right-arm bowlers, you generally have two, three, four, um, you know, in, in, in a game, maybe five or six, right? And you might only have one or two left-arm seamers, and it's very rare to have three or four in a game. And I think it's just that it doesn't rough up as much. It doesn't mean that you won't occasionally get that footmark to hit. But it also probably means that you change the way that you bowl at a certain point, but you're changing the way that you bowl without, like if you're a left-arm finger spinner bowling to a left-hander, it makes sense to chuck the ball in those footmarks because, as I said, four, five, six, seven, eight bowlers might have run through there. If it's only one or two, you're not going to get as much purchase and you're not going to get as much dramatic um, spin, but you're probably still trying almost as hard. And I wonder if it doesn't almost ruin your normal skills at that point. But um, Unakut, I, I mean, I haven't looked at his numbers from last year, but I remember looking at him the year before and the year before that. He looks like uh, – I think there's this big thing in Indian cricket at the moment that if someone's not good in the IPL, they're not good cricketers. And I think Unakut is probably one of the players who has fallen to that. And we know that he's at best a backup bowler probably in the IPL who can be used – very well in certain situations, but, you know, struggles in other ones. Uh, so I think from that perspective, you know, where they have found themselves in, in is 
that he maybe has a lower reputation than he deserves to have. But I think he's an interesting prospect. I just don't think that you need to play him for Ashwin. Um, not that Ashwin might not use those footmarks brilliantly, because he may. But a one bowler putting footmarks on the pitch, I'm not sure is going to make as much of a difference as people think it does in cricket. Uh, Ashwani says, Jared, why is Bangladesh not preferred wrist spinner in shorter format as opposed to teams like Australia, India, Afghanistan, blah, blah, blah? Well, I mean, traditionally, Bangladesh doesn't have as many wrist spinners. I don't know if you know the... Uh, Bangladesh Premier League um, uh, situation, which is, I think, one of the funniest rules ever, that they had, I think they had two regulations that you needed to have one bowler who could bowl over 90 miles an hour and, an, and a wrist spinner in your side. And that was supposed to be promoting, of course, fast bowlers in Bangladesh and wrist spinners. I think the way that the pitches develop over there, that sort of Shakib al-Hassan type of finger spinner who keeps it low and skids it is probably a better option than a wrist spinner. Wrist spinners... Uh, wrist spin has put more overspin on the ball and uh, they put more revolutions on the ball altogether, but they specifically put more um, overspin on the ball, whereas finger spin has put more side spin on the ball. And in Bangladesh, I would assume, because of the kinds of pitches that I've certainly um, always noticed over there, that the side spin and the lower skidding kind of bowler is more important than a wrist spinner. I would assume that is the reason that we haven't seen as many. Um, and a lot of these things are condition-based. I've still never made my big video on on conditions-based cricketers, but the, the one I always talk about is, of course, left-arm finger spinners, where you get left-arm finger spinners like Michael Beer and Ashley Giles and Paul Harris and Ray Price and um, all these sorts of big, strong left-arm finger spinners outside of Asia. Then inside of Asia, you know, you get Harath and Bisham Beatty and... Um, uh, Jadeja and, and um, Shakib Hassan, right? Yeah, so shorter, skittier type bowlers. I don't think that's a mistake, right? I think that's that's happening very specifically. That you know, in different places, um, different kinds of bowlers naturally evolve, and that we haven't really thought about that as much in cricket. And I think maybe going forward, we will start to think about that if we can develop other bowlers as well. Meh says, Jared, how can we, the fans, not get frustrated by the constant selection blunders and conservative approach from the Indian unit? Well, I don't think they lost this last World Cup because of selection blunders. A selection blunder for me is, you know, if they didn't pick any of the top eight or nine players available to them. I'm not sure that that was the case. Um, the conservative approach is more interesting, but I think if you look at my video series, what you see is that the fans being frustrated is part of the conservative approach. There is no way an Indian team can reshape itself and experiment and lose, try new things and fail and move on if every time they do it, they're accused of doing selection blunders, right? And so they're going to fall back onto the conservative approach, which I think is, I think we'd have to say through the history of Indian cricket, that conservative approach is certainly something that comes through. You wouldn't say they're one of the more, more progressive cricket nations um, in a way that perhaps Pakistan, West Indies. Um, I'm trying to think who else. Even England at times, weirdly, um, have been. And England's quite a conservative cricket culture as well. 
um, it, until, you know, but England was one of the first nations that really went all in on the idea that we could keep his head to bat uh, well before anyone else did and had probably the first batter who could keep, who you know, in gym parks, all those sorts of things. So I do think from that perspective that there is an inbuilt um, conservative to nature into Indian cricket. And I don't think anyone really would, um, uh, you know, deny that at this point. My worry is how you change it. It's not that it's there. I get that. That's fine. And you can work with that. But how do you change it? And that is where I think it gets a lot more interesting. I do think that this generation of Indian cricketers, um, I, I remember talking to a player, a, an Indian player about 10 or 12 years ago, and he was saying all the young players coming through, all they do is come up to you with their phone showing you what people are saying about them on Twitter. <laughs> it's just like, you don't need that. That's just not a helpful thing for you, right? Even 90% of it's positive and 10% is negative. You're going to hold on to the 10% negative more often anyway. Um, and even the positive stuff, unless it's actual proper constructive criticism, none of this is going to help you. And this guy was saying that he, he really worried about that generation. Well, I would say this generation is far worse, right? They're really involved with social media now in a way that probably when I was being told that in 2010, Twitter was just starting. And and I do think that is an, uh, an issue. And so the interesting thing about your question is, is your question part of the problem, right? And you could say this about all, all fan cultures kind of create the, the problem sometimes for the team in its own way. Um, and, so, and so in Australia, you know, the whole idea is to play cricket harder, more aggressive and all this sort of stuff. Whereas very rarely do they, you know, oh, they want them to sledge. Well, when do Australians sledge? They sledge when they're winning. It's not, they're not sledging and they win. They win and they sledge. And so fan bases create these sort of feedback loops for the players that are toxic and don't always work in the way that you want them to. Now, on top of that, the India fan base is the biggest fan base that any professional sporting team has ever had. They are more tuned in more often than you know, Argentina or um, Brazil's uh, fan base, right? And there's no other team in the way. Manchester United, not the same, right? So from that perspective, it's really, really hard because everything is micro, right? There is no macro of Indian cricket anymore. Everything is micro. And I do believe that it sort of becomes this um, endless loop where the thing that you're complaining about ends up happening more often because you're complaining more often. And it's not like, I'm not having a go at you, Mayor. It's, a, it's fair, your question. And it's not like if you stop, that's going to stop either, right? It's a bit like, you know, some of the other loops that we see in fandoms. But at a certain point, there, there has to be a break by the team and they have to work out how to separate themselves from that. And I wonder if that wasn't Dhoni's major skill for everything else he was good at in cricket was maybe his ability to get the players to worry about what they needed to worry about and not what they didn't need to worry about. And, and I think we know that certainly in the Coley era, and, and this is not saying Coley's a bad captain or a bad player or a bad person, but I think Coley was more brand conscious in some ways, right? And, and maybe more aware of what was being said about him and everything else. Um, and and that's, there, it's just a human thing. That's who that human being is. That perhaps doesn't 
work in the way for for what they need to be. I don't think you can be that sort of Roger Federer figure if you're the Indian captain. I, I maybe Roger Federer is the wrong way, wrong person to pick there, but I'm not sure if you can be that sort of you know eyes wide open person who's looking at everything. I've talked to captains of other teams about this. They find it impossible, um, you know, to kind of follow all that. Uh, and and it's not to say that Shastri and Kohli were wrong in what they were doing, and they had success in many different ways. And obviously, it was a really good team under them. But I just wonder if that, you know, that wasn't the right way of breaking it. And then, you know, whether Rohit and and Raul Dravid have even started really, you know, to to look at what they can do. KL Rohit again doesn't look like that sort of person. But now you're now you're talking about trying to find a personality captain, and I'll tell you that's where teams often go wrong. So I, I almost think that this is a systemic problem that needs to be broken, you know, down step by step uh, by Indian cricket. But I'm not sure that that is where they're at. I, I had a couple of Indian cricketers contact me after my Indian video essay, and you know, thanking me for it, and and I was saying to them, look, I don't. Th- Some of the statistical stuff I said is probably less known. But I don't think that the overarching narrative of what I said about Indian cricket is unknown. I don't think I don't know if Raul Dravid or Rohit Sharma or you know any of the other coaching staff or management staff have watched that video. But if they have, I don't think they'd be sitting there going, "Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know that." They might do that like a couple of times throughout the entire series. They're going to be sitting there going, "Yeah, that's more or less what we already knew." And I think that's the bigger problem at this point. Um, the only other thing I would say about selections in general when we come to the Indian team is selection committee is still nowhere near as professional as it should be. Uh, I think India should be the next team after England to look into scouting and general managers and everything else. And I don't really see the idea of you have to have been out of the game for five years to select a team, especially in T20 cricket. Absolutely nonsense. Last one from Ashwani, who says, do you think Ashwin should be in the India ODI squad? Uh, well, it's going to be a World Cup in India coming up, isn't it? His batting should be quite handy in that. I haven't looked at the Indian ODI team as closely as I did the T20 team. Off the top of my head, I can't see any reason why he shouldn't be in the squad with a World Cup coming up. Um, if the, you know, he should be a plus asset in that format, his batting should be of slightly more worth in one day cricket than it is in T20 cricket. Um, and then, of course, you have the ability to be bowling at home during a World Cup. Is there a better bowler in the world in India? Or is there a better bowler in the world in their own conditions than Ashwin right now? I, I find it hard to think that he shouldn't be doing that. And if you do want him to play in the World Cup and he wants to play in the World Cup, then I would think he would need to be in and around the squad as much as possible. Anyway, thank you all uh, so much for your questions. Remember, we're doing Wagon Wheel live uh, every week. It will be roughly around this time uh, when we, when we, you know, uh, permitting uh, when I have to put my daughter to bed and all these sorts of other things. Uh, kids are on holiday and everything else. But huge thanks to everyone. If you haven't checked out that Indian essay, I've done that. I've just finished one on Pakistan and why they've been so bad in the World Test Championship, uh, which I quite like. It's a couple. Uh, I will try and do something after the IPL draft, but. Uh, unfortunately, life might get in the way there a little bit. Um, and uh, I have another video coming up. I have a video coming out on Christmas Day as well, uh, which is about cricket's relationship to Christmas. Um, anyway, uh, thank you very much. Like, subscribe, press the little bell icon. Uh, go and buy as many Manscaped products as you possibly can. Support everyone on the 99.94 network. I, I can't 
the more you listen to 99.94 podcast, the more videos I can make here. It's that simple at the moment. Um, we can we can turn this into a prof- professional business rather than uh, me putting my daughter down and coming to this chat 10 minutes late. Anyway, thank you to everyone. And what's this montage? Oh, that's not my montage. I must play one of Steve Harmison's montages here. Um, uh, but yeah, as I said, support us wherever you can. Thank you to everyone who put comments in and huge thanks to everyone on Patreon. Oh, and thank you to uh, Bodyline T-shirts for my, uh, my uh, what's this? Curtly, Curtly Ambrose T-shirt. Um, and uh, yeah, just, but, but, you know, we're getting towards the end of the year, but just a huge thanks for being able to turn this channel into something far more than I ever thought we were going to be able to. So thank you again, and I will see you again next week. Thanks for listening to Wagon Wheel on 99.94. Remember to download our app or just search for West Indies, India, England, South Africa, and Sri Lanka with the search term 99.94 where you find podcasts or on YouTube. This show has an ad-free version via Patreon, which also allows you to ask questions before anyone else and many other extras as well. There is a link in the show notes. And if you want more content, well, I have good news for you because we have a lot of things. You can follow us on YouTube where we make all kind of crazy stuff like the complete history of New Zealand opening batters and how Kagisa Rabada was dismissed from a zombie ball. We do a similar thing on TikTok. I also have an emailer that sends out a couple of columns a week and we run another podcast called Double Century on the History of Cricket. This podcast is hosted by me, Jared Kimber. It is produced by Nick McCorriston. We also have a great support team from 42 with Rati Joshi on socials, Orijoti Senapia producing podcasts, Maida Akam producing some of the shows, and Makunda Banredi as the head of YouTube content. <laughs>